Hello, and welcome to Noise Creators, episode 28. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and this week I'm here with... Let's pray I pronounced this right because I was a bad podcast host and I didn't ask for proper pronunciation like I normally do. Sam Guayana. Sam is a producer out of Toronto, Ontario. He's worked with bands like Like Pacific, Rarity, his own band uh, July, Heavy Hearts, and plenty, plenty more. We have a really awesome talk, and Sam and I happen to be on the same page about a lot of things, and uh, he gets into how he feels about production. I think we have a really cool and interesting talk on modern production, and I think this is a great episode. You should go to his profile, check out his Spotify playlist, his discography, and his bio. We have it all on his Noise Creators profile, and check this episode out. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what are you using to record your voice today? I'm on a Vintage 87 into a Vetus MA5 preamp into a Hairball 1176. Damn, that's some good gear nerd stuff right there. <laughs> the, the Vetus pre's are fucking dope. They are my favorite. I've owned a lot of preamps because I'm a bit of a gear nerd, and I've sold everything but those at one time or another so you're one of those people you you've cycled through a lot of gear to testing and finding what sticks yeah pretty much i mean i know sort of sounds i like and i also know that everything is everybody's always hyping up over stuff but uh -huh. those things are like those are the be all end all for me like i would sell everything and i would keep those till i die pretty much interesting nice nice yeah. so tell me about your background in music when I was 12, I moved in with my dad. I was living with my mom. Uh, I moved in with my dad, and I wasn't that active of a kid at the time. And my dad was sort of like, look, do something. Like, you know, I was confused and, you know, super young at the time and just like, do something. Do sports, do music. And I was like, you know what? Let me do music. And everybody always hmm. thinks that. Like, I like music. I'll do music. But it was actually sort of like... A light bulb in my head like yeah you know what let me try music and uh and my dad was obviously super super supportive and uh i started playing drums at like 13 and pretty much from there just you know did the band thing still doing the band thing and you know built up slowly from there nice and so how does producing fall into that equation when i was about 14 i joined my first band we never really hit a recording studio we sort of started building our own with, you know, the help of our parents. And it wasn't huge, but it was just like a, a basement rig, 001 Mac computer. And nice. we recorded ourselves. 
Yeah, we pretty much just recorded. We had my dad had a friend who was like an engineer. He mostly did like rap and stuff at the time, but he wanted to just you know once once you do this, you want to try everything. So yeah. uh, he he was he was stoked on the idea to record like a band, and yeah, we sort of built a, a small studio from scratch and recorded ourselves, and then the uh, the band fell through and everything went away. But I was really hooked on the idea of recording, so I bought like an M-Box and another computer and sort of just did stuff out of my basement afterwards. Nice. So how do we get from doing stuff out of your basement to where we are today? Since um, if anybody's listened to this podcast before, they got an intro to you in Anton's uh, podcast, I guess. Mm -hmm. Tell us how you got there. Well, I guess it's it always stuck. Like I've, I've been in a bunch of bands and all my closest friends are obviously musicians, but like my closest, like Anton and my friend Scott are both full-time engineers and producers as well. So I've always been like around that I've, since I was like, you know, since I was 14 on, I've been around producers and studios and things like that and in and out of recording. And it just kept growing like this feeling of it's so cool to make a record. It's so cool to be on the recording side or on the musician side of a record, but it's really fun to to be with your friends and make music and, and, you know, record them and help write songs with them in a different capacity. Cause when you're in, when you're in a band, you're sometimes, you know, you're writing with the same people all the time. You're doing sort of the same thing, but when you're a producer, you get the opportunity to sort of branch out and, you know, listen objectively to th- to different things and sort of figure that out. I like that. That's a, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. So tell us about your studio. Anton and I have a small space in Toronto, about 750 square feet two rooms with a decent sized booth and it's nice it's like it's it's a cool sort of blend of both of our tastes and we've got a console we've got a toft here but it we never really use it so i, I feel like that's the uh, the new the new trend is uh toft as studio decoration mm-hmm. yeah it's so weird i well, i think it's like one of those things that like you get it you're like yeah i got a console and then you listen back to in the box and you go Maybe I don't need this for anything but Mike Please and EQs. <laughs> Maybe I don't need to mix through this thing. Yeah. It's a great console. Like, it's unreal. Mm-hmm. The EQs are awesome. Preamps are a little low in headroom, but, you know, it's not like you can't make... It's not like you can't record with it. It's it's great. But I, I always teased Hanton when he bought it, calling it, like, my first recording console. Oh, <laughs> that's good. That's very good. <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely not one to talk. It's not like I owned a console better or will or anything, you know, but it was just so 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 much like, we don't really need this, but I, as stoked as I am, it's definitely like, that's your first console, you know? Yes, yes. I, 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 I am definitely with you on this one. So tell me about something that makes your studio unique. I think the fact that, it's run by like Anton and I, who are both musicians. And even though we're sort of like competitors, we share a lot of similar ideas. So we bounce, we bounce a lot of work off of each other. And I think it's unique because a band without even knowing can get the perspective of two different people Hmm. on their work. And not just that, like it's, it's not a commercial place. Like it's very solo driven or not solo, like the pair of us, it's very driven by us. It, we don't have to sort of answer to anybody. We're not like, we don't feel like a business as much as we are just, you know, guys trying to make records. And I think, it, obviously, a lot of guys in our genre have their own spaces, but a lot of guys in Toronto don't. And it's sort of a different vibe, I think, because there's like eight or nine huge commercial studios just in Toronto alone. Hmm. So it's sort of nice to be like, on. The, we're also slightly on the outskirts, but still in the area. Very just like, 
cool vibe. I like that. And I think that that's one of the things, too, that, like, people don't get about. I'll see these little guys come around, and they're so competitive and kind of nasty towards the other producers. But mm-hmm. most of the people who are successful, it's like, yeah, I'm just making records, and that guy's making records. Like, um, I, I had, like, a band come in a little while ago, and, like, they pitted me against, like, Sam Pura. Like, you hate that guy because you guys go out for some of the same records and work with some of the same bands. I'm like, I was texting with Sam five minutes ago. I really like him. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. know what you're talking about. <laughs> I've, it's funny. Cause like a lot of people said that when Anton and I started doing mm-hmm. this together, it's like, well, you guys, you know, like you guys, we've worked on the same bands even before. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's like a, there's a, a tinge of competition, but at the same time, I've, I've said to people before, you know, I want you to work with me because I'm the best fit, not mm. because I'm the cheapest, not because uh, the other guy, you know, said this or that. I just, if, if Anton's going to do the project, that's awesome. He's, he's my friend and it's really cool to see him work. And if I'm going to do a project, that's cool. And a lot of the times, especially in the last little while, we've sort of been figuring out what we like to do more mm-hmm. and... I'm still really happy sort of in the pop punk realm and doing sort of heavier stuff. And I know Anton is really enjoying that, but he's also getting into more like indie and things that I don't really have the ear for. Hmm. Like, and I would, I would straight up admit that if, if a band hit me up for that, I'd be like, you know what, maybe a better fit is somebody who's done indie records or, you know, something like that. So it's funny from the outside, people see it as competition, but from the inside, it's just like, we're just two friends and we just make records and we have a blast doing it. That's that is, that is super right. And I think you also just touched on a really great point, which is like, I keep coming back to this thing of like the studios that, you know, obviously we all got to eat and live at sometimes, but like I, I get very frustrated when studios take jobs for genres they actively don't like. And I was telling a story that like, I often like have to say like, you know, somebody comes cause they saw, I worked on a Limp Bizkit record and they play with that stuff. I'm like, I can't take this because somebody should do this. That's going to be passionate towards your music. And yeah. I'm, I'm going to just want your band to fail because I hate this shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I totally agree with that. Like I've done like metalcore records in the past and a, I'm not great at it. And B, I, I don't fully, not that I don't believe in it. I, I think the sound is really cool and I've, I've got cool tones doing it before, but there's definitely guys who can do that record 10 times better than I can, probably for the same price that I would do it at. Mm-hmm. Why not hire somebody to the, that is good to do your project, you know? I, I, I love that. And that's, that is very, very cool. So you talked about starting up playing drums. What instruments do you play? I'm a drummer mainly. I, I'm pretty actively still one and uh mostly bass as well these days but not not like i'm not awesome at bass i'm like a, a studio bassist like i just a pick not even studio like a rock bassist like just a p bass and a pick but i really enjoy playing bass something about it feels really cool and getting like a grimy bass tone is always super fun i, I I'm, I'm with you i started off as a drummer but i'd much rather play bass at the end of the day if somebody was to give me a choice of something to play oh yeah like i like i'm in a band now playing drums but if somebody was like hey we'd love for you to just you know play sort of four on the floor bass guitar i'd be like yeah i'd probably do that so, so tell us about your band uh, I'm in a band called July, mm-hmm. sort of just like a pop punk band. We used to be way more pop punk in, in vein of sort of like Hit the Lights and All Time Low and things like that. But now we're, we're shifting our sound a little bit more towards like Panic or a little more theatrical, but not mm. like newer Panics. It's ah, it's tough to describe. It's very like rock oriented, but has a bit of the, uh, has, you know, some dissonant stuff and a bit of like that 
theatrical vibe. Nice. That sounds really interesting. Now I'm going to have to check this out. Thanks. Um, how involved do you like to get into songwriting with most bands you work with? It's something I always discuss with them in advance. So it it ranges from project to project. I, I love songwriting, but I'm not the best at just making a song out of thin air. I find my strength is taking a song and working on it with a band. So like, you know, they've got verse and chorus down, they need a bridge or they need lyrics or something like that. Then I'm I'm much more in my element to write with them if there's already sort of like a, a foundation laid. So yeah, so and like I said, it's very project dependent. There's a lot of times where bands come in and they've got full songs that just need tweaking. And then there's times where they come in with nothing and we're, you know, well, what riffs do you have? Cool, let's let's roll Pro Tools and we'll make some songs. Yeah, I think it's a funny thing. Like Steve Evanson and I would talk about this a lot that like in... It's another one of those things that's like from the outside eye that's not experienced in it. They, there's a lot of people like, oh, well, I want this person who can write a song from start to finish. It's like, well, it's your job to start it. And there's plenty – like most bands, their best asset is like the member who's not the starter but who can grow the song and grow the arrangement. And a producer who can do that, that's – a much more essential skill than being the guy who starts and figures out what the first three chords are going to be. And yeah, of course. I, for a producer, I think that that's one of the best skills. Yeah, because, I mean, I see, like, that That to me was always the definition of a producer. If I want to be a songwriter, I'll be a songwriter, mm-hmm. and I would rather show people that I'm a songwriter. But I'm a producer in the sense of, like, I don't want to write your song from start to finish, or else what's sort of the point? I don't want to say it. <laughs> it sounds cheesy. Like, I'm passionate about that. Like, mm-hmm. You're a band. You're five dudes. You can at least pull together a song. (laughs) Well, one should hope. Yeah, exactly. Uh, What do you see yourself bringing to records most often? An objective ear, I think. Mm. And I I think that comes from what we were just talking about, too, is I'm excited to hear the song for uh, for the first time. And, uh, you know, when you're a band, you've played your song a million times to each other. There's not many, you know, even your parents and your girlfriends and stuff, there's not many other people who haven't heard your song yet. To be the guy you hired to record your song, be the first to hear it is, I think, like, really a cool cool aspect and something I like to bring. Like, right away, I, I would stop a recording sometimes, you know halfway through when I'm sitting with a band and be like, okay, I know that riff is really cool, but we've heard it too many times. Uh, and, you know, two seconds ago I was stoked on it, and now I don't ever want to hear that riff again. Hmm. And that, that is an important thing to bring up. Yeah. So what's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? A lot of them sort of expect it to go, like, a lot easier or expect me to write or, you know, expect that Pro Tools can fix everything. And while a lot of that is true, that doesn't make up for, like, the laziness of, coming unprepared if that makes any sense no that does and i i like that because i think that that is you know i ask this question about 40 times on this podcast now that's that is a (laughs) fantastic point that i have not heard somebody bring up yet and thanks it is interesting too because even if a band's been in with another producer like every producer is such a different thing and the expectation of what's going to be there i i almost wonder if that's like some of the modern producer's job is that you have to manage that expectation of what's going to happen when they come in. Oh, yeah. I, I totally think it is. And the worst part is I feel like it's going downhill. I, you know what? That's not true. I feel like it's sort of coming back up a little bit. But I feel like it went downhill because there's just so many guys who right away will be like, oh, you'll just fly that, right? And you know what? I might have just flown it. Mm. But don't say that. You know, maybe maybe let's talk about making the riff slightly different in the second one or changing a vocal line or something like that. So it's sort of like a built-in dependence and it sucks because then I always watch like 
I love watching anything classic albums related. Mm, yeah, yeah. If you're, oh, if, you're a pro, if you're a producer and you're not watching things like that, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Oh, yeah, totally. And like, and then you watch like you watch classic albums Metallica or something like mm. that. And even though that record is, was chopped like crazy, the Black Album was like yeah. super chopped like crazy, they still did the majority of the record off the floor, you know? They mm. still did the beds off the floor. And, you know, the chances of me doing a band off the floor these days is, you know, next to none. I, I doubt I'll do it. Yeah, uh, it, it, it is. I mean, it's also one of those things of like, too, of like, you know, yes, they had all the time in the world to get those sounds and all those fun stuff. And it's like, you know, you could do that and God knows what punching was in. But like, you learn so many, like, even just watching like uh, Hetfield doing the vocal without the headphone thing. In oh, that yeah. One, that, that, that was like, I remember, I mean, actually, the funny thing is when I saw that movie and that came out, I was uh, 14, so I wasn't really producing yet. But like, revisiting it later on it was like such an eye-opening experience yeah it's it's crazy because you see a good band every good band has the same fundamental and a lot of really good bands can go in and lay chunks of a record off the floor Mm -hmm. and then a lot of bands you know a lot of bands are influenced by bands that are current and they just think well you know that record sounds so slick they you know, they just did it the way everybody does it. Let's just record a record. But no, chances are like some of our, some of the more recent bands still will do off the floor stuff, Mm. but they're like really talented bands, you know, like they're, they're guys who know their parts when, before they hit the studio and the producers, there, you know, tightening things up, but they're playing those things on the go. And to me, that's important because when you leave the studio, you're going to have to take these five songs and play them live. And there's 80% of these songs you've never played before because we did them in the studio. I like that. That's a, that, 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 is, that is good. And I, I think that that is the thing is too, is, is too many bands go, I want to do this this way because my favorite band did it. And they're not thinking about, well, we have to compensate for the fact that you're not your favorite band and you're not yeah. at that, that skill level. Exactly. And and they also have to think to themselves like, well, their favorite bands are doing that because their favorite bands did it. Mm-hmm. And their favorite bands are my favorite bands or, you know, an, um, a producer's favorite bands more than the band recording, if that makes any sense, you know? Like, oh, totally. Like there was a Saves the Day record that I didn't even know was done mostly off the floor. And then there, I watched hmm. like recording videos and I was floored by the fact that what I was listening to on that record was exactly what they were playing at that time. No, I, I'll tell you, like when we did Sound the Alarm, it was like one of those things where it's like, you know, uh, it was very easy to keep a lot of what they did because those guys play fucking perfectly. This is going to sound really uh, weird and kind of unprepared of me, but I didn't know that you were part of Sound the Alarm. Oh, yeah, no, no, I, I, I was uh, the Pro Tools editor and assistant on Sound the Alarm. That record... I get my bass tones based on that record. So, so, so here's the funny thing: is I get my bass tones still so off that record, and it's oh like, oh my a, god! Like it's, but you, you, the problem is, is it's Manny, and yeah, Manny. I one, he has a crazy, crazy tone that just comes off of his hands. And then two, he has a really unique bass. It has a um, P bass with an Italian name that I'm not thinking of because I just woke up. Bartolome or something like that type of pickup. Okay. Um, and so it's that. It's the funniest thing. So the bass amp we use for every record is this Ampeg B100R. Are you familiar with these? Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. So like, you know, $350 piece of shit amp, but... 
when we did like the Cure record, when we did the Limp Biscuit record before that, we would A B blind amps, and that amp would win every fucking time. <laughs> and it's so crazy because you're like, this thing is a fucking piece of junk they tried to sell to people, and it just sounds fucking amazing. And I've been using that on every record now for I think like. 12, 13 years now. It's crazy. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know what? It's funny. Like, one of the things I use for bass tone, like, I always do bass DI. I, I don't really uh, mic up an amp too often. Mm-hmm. I'll reamp afterwards with, or, you know, I'll use a Sans amp plugin or the Ampeg plugin's really good, mm-hmm. I yep. find. No, I think that's the best bass plugin for sure. Oh, yeah. But I have a Line 6 pod, one of the old Red Bean ones, not the super old one, I think the X3 or something like that. And the only reason I keep it is there's a bass tone on there called Pawn Shop Punk, and it sounds exactly like that Saves the Day record, just that grimy, perfect hmm. P bass tone. So- uh, that's funny. I got, I actually have to I got to check that out now since <laughs> it's funny. But yeah, it is one of those funny things of like, you know, everybody goes back to the cliche of like, it's the player, it's the player, it's the player. And it's yeah. like, yeah, you know, like I literally own the exact equipment and brought my mics out for that record and used the same things that were used and... I still can't get that bass tone because it's Manny, except when I have Manny come in and be a studio musician on my records. Yeah, and it's 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 the perfect combo like of a P bass with just a solid player. You know, like a guy who's hitting every note with meaning, which rarely happens with bassists that I record these days. Yeah, I mean that that is uh, that 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 is sadly the case. I think it's uh, also the funny thing is like you know Manny's a finger player and like you know how there's so few people oh, wow. who could get like a tone that good and consistent off their fingers, but he oh is... Oh, my God. I didn't you know. know that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, it is... Just, it, he, he breaks every rule of everything, and uh, it, it just... It's it's pretty fucking crazy. So that's amazing. That's, that's like... I wish every single musician ever could do that. Like, it could be that. Just be, be, like, as good at your thing as you can be. Even if you don't get crazy skilled, even if you're not ripping the craziest licks, just play, like, a simple... Play just simple stuff, but just do it super well. Yeah, I, I, I think I, it is that funny thing of like uh, somebody once said, it's like, you know, um, when you're a drummer, don't pass go until you can play back in black with a perfect groove. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One hundred percent. There's like that bad scene in the, that new show Vinyl, like where he tries to just get them to do like the kinks cover and do that well, and that it like sucks <laughs> the life out of them. But like there is something to that. It's like. You should know how to play a three-chord punk song that's pretty slow before you get into doing anything crazy. Yeah. I remember when I was – before I was really big into recording, but I was – obviously, I'm, I'm uh, playing drums. I was watching just like, you know, drummer solo videos on YouTube or something like that. And I'm going through all these videos, and it's this one competition and a bunch of cool, you know, jazz drummers and crazy drummers doing stuff. And then it goes to Chad Smith, and he's just playing the most simple four-on-the-floor beat for two minutes straight. But the thing is, it is packed with groove and it sounded amazing and it was perfect. And that was his skill, you know, like Mm. he was holding down that while while everybody else is like, you know, shredding or showing off. He's like, I can just do this super, 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 super well. I like that. And it it is that thing that dude has, as much as I don't love to hear their records, that dude has the most (laughs) impeccable, impeccable groove on everything. That's exactly how I feel about it, too. (laughs) Nice. So getting back into uh, some of the questions, uh, Mm, what's the biggest mistake or a smart thing you see bands do with vocals? The biggest mistake I find is guys just don't warm up. And it's not even like, 
you know, there's people who can do like proper vocal warmups, but sometimes it's just a matter of breathing a little bit or, you know, not having certain products before like milk or things like that, but just like a lot of vocalists don't warm up. And at the same time, the best thing that vocalists do is warm up. A lot of guys just want to like start recording, but then there's those guys who are like scared to ask, like, do you mind if I warm up? It's like, no, of course, go yeah. go warm up your vocals because you will sing infinitely better if you take five minutes out of your life. Yeah, I, I, I'll sit here and I'll work on the uh, work on something in the mix. You please take those 20 minutes that will make our lives way easier. Yeah, exactly. Um, what's a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process? Pay attention to other people's parts. Mm. A lot of the times... A lot of bands, a lot of members are just on their phone or they don't even show up or different things like that. But there's a lot of times as like, obviously, there's some guys who go overboard with it. But there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of attentive guitarists who make sure that they're paying attention for the right reasons that a lead doesn't clash with a vocal or something like that. Mm. And every time every time I see that happen, I'm just very excited that somebody's as passionate about it as they should be yeah and it's a shame that we have to call this something that doesn't happen i i know <laughs> i know it was it's like it's like going back to the like the older date like the off the floor thing like we were talking about mm. it's just like those guys know all their parts so they're doing it but even though you're not doing your part at the same time be aware of what's happening because we're we're gonna fuck ourselves over later in the recording if we don't pay attention to this now no it's a a Great point. So what happens when you and a band disagree about something? When me and the entire band disagree, I will let them sort of have their way. It's, you know, it's sort of, it's their song and I get that, but I always try my best to explain myself as detailed as possible when I'm making a dis like a change because sometimes I, I've seen some producers who just literally ax parts like, nope, I don't want to do that. And that's fine. I used to do that a lot too, but I realized that it had a lot it had a bigger repercussion when bands were like, well, why do you want to do mm. that? So if we disagree after my explanation, I'll totally let it go. And what happens is a lot of the times when that part comes later down the line, like during vocals or something, the, a light bulb goes off in the band's head and they're like, oh yeah, you know what? I understand why you wanted to do that initially. Let's maybe look at that idea again. Mm. But if one, if I disagree with one band member, especially on their own part, I'll let it go up to a vote and most of the time you can tell that the, the rest of the band is like, yeah, we get that he, he wants that one part, but we understand it, it doesn't make any sense. And we'll sort of, you know, ax it or work work it out or do something. Like I, that. I think you make a great point, too, that, that that disagreement is often just with one person who's not thinking about the whole and just thinking about what they want to do. Yeah, exactly. And it's always a bigger picture thing. And that's, I say that a lot to bands and I sound so corny whenever it comes out of my mouth, but it's yeah. so true. Like your little part isn't as important as the entire thing, mm. you know. It's it's tough because, it, like, you know, they really fall in love with the details and their inspiration. Yeah, and oh, yeah, like, totally. Yeah, it, it, it just doesn't and, do it, especially, you know, drummers who listen to too much Travis Barker. <laughs> uh, yeah, 100%. I'm by no means a flashy drummer. Mm. I will take the simplest beats with tasteful things over... You know, that fill that starts way too early and goes on for way too long. I, I, I like that. So on a scale of like Steve Albini, who doesn't really interfere uh, in song structures and a John Feldman who totally rewrites band songs, where do you see yourself on that scale usually in most projects? I would say way closer to John Feldman. I won't totally rewrite a part like just because I hate it, but I will 100% 
write something if it needs to be written, if that makes sense. Like I will totally, I'd rather that part be the best it can be. And if the band isn't figuring that out on their own, I could be like, hey, you know, this is how we do this way better than just let them not do anything. And I'd rather not be like, well, you know what? Scrap that. We're totally rewriting a bridge because that bridge mm. is terrible. That being said, though, John Fellman's like my fa- one of my favorite producers. Mm. And I know that the reason his stuff sounds amazing is because he's so liberal mm. like that. He's so, I let's do this my way, but understand that I'm we're doing this my way because it's going to be fucking amazing at the end of it. That's a good point because, yeah, I do love John Fellman's productions and yet I don't do that at all. Yeah, exactly. So let's get into how you feel about some modern production tools. Do amp simulators have a role in your productions? Yeah, they do. If We don't have a, a crazy selection of amps here, but we have a, a few nice ones, so we're always recording with them. But if I want a clean that I just can't dial in, I always find amp sims will do that almost way easier than anything hmm. else. Nice. Do you have any ones that you prefer? Eleven, uh, the Pro Tools mm-hmm. one, is great. It's, it's actually, the, I mean, like, there's a lot of crazy ones out there, but 11 is really good as long as you take the time to figure mm. it out. I find right away when you pull it up, it sounds, like, thin and weird, but if you sort of spend some time with it, it can, it can do some really cool things. And if you turn the cab off and you download other cab impulses... Mm. You can you can also make it sound way way better. I find. Yeah, actually, uh, that that has been my uh, when I've had to use it. That has been my trick is using some of those uh, red line impulses. Yeah, all oh, those yeah. are amazing. How about sample drums? Uh, yes, they're. I I don't want to say a big role, but I don't remember the last time I did a record without sample drums in some capacity. Nice. It's it's just a solid mm-hmm. thing. Like we, we're at the limits of our room. We don't have like the biggest live room with you know. We can't get crazy room mic sounds and everything like that. At least not ones that I'm always super happy with. And I find a crazy amount of snare comes from room mm-hmm. mic, like that big beefiness. So if I can find a sample that will blend properly, that's the other thing. As long as it's transparent at the end of the day. I, I remember watching a video on, on YouTube recently about bad CGI and people are like, oh, CGI is ruining movies. It's like, well, there's so much more CGI than you mm-hmm. think. You only see the bad CGI. That's a great so it's like point. There's so much more drum sound. Because I am totally yeah, that it, guy who like... I, I, my roommate would probably be like, oh, my God, he has to stop saying that. <laughs> and that's a really good point because, yeah, then, like, I, I can remember, like, watching, like, a making of Mr. Robot thing or, like, seeing the tiny things they do when they film in my neighborhood to change little locations. And, like, that stuff's nice and good and coy and tasteful. And then, I, you know, the second I see, like, Jar Jar Binks, I'm like, oh, dear God, fuck off. Exactly. It's like the second you hear a snare that's way too perfect, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. It's sampled, but like, there's some records I'll be like, man, that snare is amazing. That whole drum kit glues perfectly. And I'll look it up or I'll, you know, talk to somebody who might've worked on the record and they're like, oh yeah, there's definitely Mm -hmm. samples in there. And you know it subconsciously, but you want to sometimes believe it's like, no, we can all get crazy room sounds. And it's like the other way around. Like I've heard some snares that are like, that's a sample for sure. It sounds super weird, but it's just like tasteful, you know, working on it and transient designing and, you know, clipping the top out of it so it always sounds sort of whatever mm-hmm. so it goes sort of both ways no there there is you know some drummers just sound that perfect it's it's crazy oh yeah totally how about pitch correction yeah same thing with with that as with like drum samples like the goal is to not be heard at the end of the day and the reason we hate pitch correction is because we've heard a lot of really bad pitch mm-hmm. correction at least i think yes. so um and Melodyne's my sort of go-to for that because I find I can make it less noticeable than like auto-tune or things like that. Do you master your own records? I try my best not to, solely because I'm not 
a mastering engineer and those those guys a lot of good mastering engineers are guys who only master and they spend so much time focusing on those sounds and focusing on what to listen for in a mastering world that I'd rather not do that on top of listening to a song I've heard 8 million times already. Uh, I think that, that that is a good way of putting it the 8 million times. of You talked about it before about the objective perspective and it's like, it just, you know, it's not going to yeah. happen when you've heard it 8 million times. No, I'm not going to master a song well. Some mastering guys can just make it so hmm. loud and so good and I can't do that. So I'm going to struggle to make it as loud as a commercial release and just destroy it in the process after working on it for, you know, after working, I, I spend about two days on a song. So after doing two days of crazy work and stressing over everything, I'm going to undo half of that in 30 minutes by trying to master it myself. Uh, so that, that, that's a good segue. You, you got me, you got me too. So how long do you usually take to track a song and how long do you usually take to mix a song? If a band is coming in to like do a single or something, I'll always book two days and we usually wrap up in just over a day and a half about 10 hour days too so i would say anywhere from 14 to 16 hours of tracking and then not counting editing i can usually mix a song in about four hours to somewhere i'm really really happy with nice that's a, that's a, you 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 and i are similar on so many of these things i try not to think a lot when i'm mixing i i try obviously i'll still solo out and do the do you know stuff that everybody does but especially these days i'm really trying to not rush through mixing but just be more diligent with it no i you know one of the most uh life-changing things i ever had was uh i read a thing with nigel godrich where he talked about how you know even like okay computer or bex sea change that those are two and a half hour mixes and yeah you know when you learn that mixing is a lot about emotion it's like that thing of like get it set up get it perfect and then after it's like in that range it's like just feel it and get it right yeah it, um i went to france last summer for the mixing with the masters mm. thing and who so so who did you, you see i saw chris lord algae and he's like that he's the guy that everybody's like yo the master mm -hmm. of mixing and it's hilarious because he whips through a mix in 30 minutes or 40 minutes and not with crazy automation because we're you know we're 15 people there and he's got everybody's to sort of do but like a good first mix he'll whip out in under half an hour and it sounds exactly like his mix regardless of what he's working wow, on that's really interesting oh it it sort of blew my mind because aside from the like like when you, if you ever seen an interview mm. with him you know exactly how mm. he's like already he's he's very animated and very whatever and then all of a sudden he goes into mix mode and it becomes real it becomes like Okay, that guy, it, it sounds like he's a lot of talk, but then when he starts actually working on it, you're like, holy shit, he's like, oh, he's doing that? Okay, cool. And he does like the weirdest things you don't expect, and they all work, and he does them so fast, and it just sounds amazing. In so what, an what's hour. an example of one of the weirdest things he does? He put super huge amounts of 8K on everything. Huh. Like, it literally, like, we, we learn so much about being nerds and reading about, you know, frequency spectrums and things that we're not supposed to do with certain things. And he does not, he doesn't give a fuck. Like he literally, he, he works on his SSL and France, they had like the uh, Neve uh, 88R, I think, mm -hmm. or something like that. So he was telling the assistant to just pull up the SSL plugin, the Waves one, and just, uh, not even joking, like every single thing. It's like, oh, you know, 12 dB at 8K, 10 dB at 8K, wow. uh, 6 dB at 8K, like super amounts of 8k on everything and vocal like vocal guitar and snare drum kick drum everything and then he's squashing it so hard into a bus mm -hmm. comp i think the bus comp sort of takes the edge yes, off a little bit yes that, that, that definitely seems right as you're saying this yeah but it was just like 
I was, my eyeballs were popping out of my head like, well, how are you doing that? That makes no sense. And then I got home and I tried it for a little while and it didn't mm-hmm. work. I was like, this is stupid. I don't know why I even bothered to try this. But then lately, if you start with it, mm. it's amazing. Like, mm. I think what happens is we think, um, we think so- sounds are brighter than they are. And then we think mixes are duller than they are. So we're scared to sort of do things like that on the fly. But if you start with it, like you listen to a snare, it's sort of dull. You crank the 8K on it and you're just like, okay, this is stupid. But you sit on that a little bit Hmm. and then you keep working. You realize that you'll start doing it to everything and your mix will start being more like prominent and whatever. It's, It's like such a such a it's just he does it to fix a dull sound instantly and then he'll do the rest of the work he needs to do afterwards hmm. it is funny like you know i got into this uh concept it's like a political concept called the overton window and it's like uh okay so when somebody is discussing an issue there's only so much outside the issue you can talk about before people are like you're a crazy person go back to the internet comments thread and i think that there's an overton window in mixing too that when you get a sound However close that is, it's very hard for most people to imagine taking it to a very far away place than that. And being able to expand your Overton window to go like, yeah, I can totally change the sound. That's one of like your biggest duties as like somebody who does mixing and things like that is like learning how far you can away you can take a sound from where it starts at when it starts pretty terrible or even mediocre and then bringing it to someplace else and i think that that's like a really interesting thing is that like i've had the same experience now that you're saying is that like you turn up something to an excessive point when you're trying the theory out and it's like wow this actually can work i can't believe this works yeah, and it's not like, you know, initially you might be doing it because you saw it, but then when you go into like an instinctive mode, you don't think about it, but we're always doing things like that anyways because we need to correct before we do anything else to it. I, 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 I like that. This is going to give me good inspiration for the uh, rest of the week. Awesome, thanks. So what what's a good lesson you've learned from another producer? Not to sort of sweat the small stuff all the time. It's really easy once you start getting on a roll of fixing a song and changing it, it's really easy to go overboard, but you have to occasionally just learn to settle. Mm. And it's for it's for the song's sake. Just to say, you know, because you could get so hyped up on saying to yourself all the time, like, oh, you're doing this for the song, you're doing this for the song, that after a while you're just doing it for mm. you. So you have to find that line where you're just doing it for the song and no you know, not obsessing over that guitar tone, not obsessing over um, a harmony or something like that. Like, let's just just do it and then sit on it for a little while so you can sort of let it breathe and i learned that a lot from i learned that a lot from Mm. anton and i learned that a lot from uh from my friend scott too because he he's older than me and he's he made records on many different things and um his records all sound different but that's just because you know he learned that new way to do something and stuck with it for a while instead of constantly trying to you know not not improve it we're always trying to improve but constantly trying to like one up himself or something like that. No, that's that is really really good advice. I like that. Tell me one of the best moments you've had in the studio. I recorded a band called Heavy Hearts back in mm-hmm. November. Really awesome, sort of like darker emo, balance and composure sort of mm-hmm. band. I recorded them before and they're just some of the most fun guys to be around and the most creative guys mm-hmm. too. And we booked out like a whole month to do a record and I think we got the entire thing done with mixing in like 25 days because they were so prepared. And you don't think about it but the the more a band is prepared or the more you're prepared, the more fun you'll have because you're you're sort of 
just having fun with every take, mm-hmm. you know, e- everything is going well. You're not getting frustrated with anybody. So it goes so smooth that you just have such a blast doing it. And like I was saying, like they're some of the funniest guys I've ever met. So having them here for an entire month was just like, we were dying laughing every day at something ridiculous. And it, that was easily like the best time I've ever had in the studio. I think. This is really interesting. So like literally yesterday, so I've been writing a book on uh, creativity for the past uh, two years. And uh, the study I was reading is the scientist came out with a thing where they talked to a bunch of people in different fields about the um, great creative works they've had. And the one constant thing they always see, no matter whether it's like a movie, film, or any collaborative project, is that the people say, and we literally laughed harder than we've ever laughed. And like, it it was always this funny thing of like, I can remember being young, like people would often like write record reviews, like they sound like they had a terrible time making this record. And it is a funny thing of like, you know, when I look back at most of like the classic records, um you know, classic to certain people, I should say, that I've ever been a part of, that, yeah, we were fucking laughing and having a great time doing it. And that pushed the creative process along. And I think that that really doesn't get discussed enough. It's just like that saying, like, well, you know, if you if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And it's, it's totally true. Like, they love recording and they loved writing their songs and they loved playing their parts. And I loved producing the record and I loved doing that. We didn't work. Like, I almost, I almost feel like I didn't do them a, a justice because we were just hanging out the whole time, <laughs> yes. you know, and it was so fun. It was just so, and, and it's a little bit of a different pace than everything else I was doing because, because they were sort of like a darker, grungier band, they, uh, they came super prepared. All their songs were really tight already. I, I didn't feel like I had to do a lot. It was very, it was funny. It, we were talking about the, like the Feldman and the Steve mm. Albini thing. It was probably the most Albini style thing I would have ever done. Because it was so little of, oh, let's redo this part. And so little of rewriting something. It was just it was just all like in the moment and super fun. That's awesome. So conversely, uh, what was one of the worst moments you've had and what did you learn from it? One of the worst moments I've had was usually when, when I record, like I'll, I'll, when a band hits me up, I'll respond with like, hey, so, you know, have your stuff restrung. You know, I have a drum kit. All I ask is you buy it at these mm-hmm. heads for when we record. And I, I sent out that prelim- this. I sent out that email to a band, and um, the the band shows up. A band I've never worked with. I don't actually know a lot of pe- a lot of bands I record are like friends of mine, but these are just guys like I never knew or I never met before. The drummer shows up with a really, really, really shitty snare drum and a broken cymbal, and that's it. No stands, no nothing. And I'm like. Uh, what are you doing? He's like, oh, they told me you had a kit here. I was like, I, I know that, but I definitely sent out an email saying, you know, these are the things you're definitely going to need. If you need anything else, by all means, let me know and we can work that out. But if you have all this, cool. And I got the email back like, okay, cool. We've got everything. So the drummer shows up. He's grumpy and has a sort of a shitty attitude too. We pause, we pause recording. We, you know, I'm doing a bit of pre-pro while the drummer goes out and buys skins and rents cymbals and everything for Mm. the kit. We record his parts, we start moving on, and I'm, I look out the, the window, the control room window, and he's taking the skins off of the drum afterwards. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? He's like, oh, well, I bought these skins. I'm like, yeah, I know, but that's like the, you know, that's the fee that we everybody agreed on to use the drum kit. And he actually was like, <gasps> like super frustrated about this. He made every single mistake along the way, and I was the bad guy in this situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that, that is a thing. 
Oh, that and yeah. sorry, I just remembered another one that might actually be worse. I was recording this this metalcore band with a terrible, terrible screamer. Like he whispered everything, and every time I tried to give him advice, he would not mm. take it. He would just tell me like, "That's how I scream. That's how I do this." So I let it go, and surprisingly, with a lot of compression, made it sound sort of half mm-hmm. decent. But he went out into the live room. My my band used to hang out at my old studio a lot with me. So he went out in, into the live room and was talking to my guitarist not knowing he was the guitarist in my band and just fully bad-mouthing me. Like, that guy has no fucking idea what he's talking about. <laughs> I, there's these kind of screams and whatever, and those are pussy screams, and I do good screams. And I'm not kidding. He was, it was literally whispers. Like, wow. it wasn't screams that this guy was doing. And he's saying this to my guitarist. My guitarist is just sitting there like, mm-hmm, okay, sure. And the band leaves, and he came in, and he relayed all this to me, and I couldn't help but just yeah. laugh. <laughs> because when somebody's so ridiculous says something like that, you're just like, it doesn't even matter. That's just a funnier story than it is an insult to me or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, well, it's, it, it's that funny thing of when somebody comes to you with a, I know all of this and none of the feedback's going to get to me. It's like, why don't we try and listen to two things and see? Like, I'm happy to bridge somebody's gap sometimes with that knowledge if they really don't know. But like, oh, yeah. Oh, man. That that is just the worst attitude. But the sad thing is, like, I feel like no education can do anything because those are the type of people who also don't read and don't study and just <laughs> go about making us no, all yeah. miserable with their existence. Yeah, they have their like set in their ways, ways, and they ha- we have no idea how they got there, but nothing will change it, and it sucks because there's not even like a shred of awesome in how they're set in their ways. Yeah. They're just. They they think because they came up with a unique thing, it'll be amazing when sometimes that unique thing is just fucking terrible. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So so, so with that, uh, (laughs) what's the musical bane of your existence? Anything out of tune that could have just been fixed Mm. easily. One of them, it's funny, like there's out of tune stuff that sounds great because, you know, it's just a perfect mix Mm -hmm. of everything. Like Beatles were never in tune or anything like that. And Beatles songs Mm -hmm. are awesome. But one of the things, it's funny, there's that Alicia Keys song. That uh, I don't remember what it's called. No, no one oh, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, oh, no, I don't no, know. No. It's the one everybody knows because her vocal's totally mm-hmm. out of tune on it. Like not out of tune, just untuned. And all I could think of is like these performances are unreal. Couldn't you have just tuned them? Nobody would have been upset, and nobody in their right minds would have been. Oh, that's tuned. It would have just been like ten times better. And I get why they didn't, because, you know, they're trying to keep it Mm -hmm. raw and whatever. But then there's some situations where fixing something does a lot, you know, fixing something slightly can go a long way. It's not like we're mangling her vocal to work. We know she's a great Mm -hmm. singer. We're just, if you're going to have, you know, if you're going to tune everything else, if you're going to tune your guitar for a take, tune her vocal for that take afterwards. So anything, anything out of tune, or when you hear like a bass guitar out of tune, especially because it's so low and rumbly, like on our record, it's just so sad. I... So I think that's sort of it. I, I, it is a funny thing because, like, I you know, I always say this is that, like, you know, like when bands discuss not doing the tuning thing, it's like, well, here's the thing is, is we could tune it and no one will be annoyed or you can not tune it and you're going to lose a good part of your audience because they're just going to be so fucking annoyed every time they listen to your record. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like, a lot of a lot of audience, especially in pop music and things like that, they don't know mm-hmm. it's untuned. They just know something's yes. wrong. And they can't play so, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's the worst. Imagine, imagine sitting through anything in life being like, there's something wrong right now. <laughs> like, that's, that's so not fun. You could easily fix that. Just go, go ahead and sort of fix no, it. No, I think, I think this is a, this is a great point that we have not heard on this. So I, I, I like that. Let's get into some of your music taste. Uh, what's a perfect record someone else has made and what makes it perfect? 
probably uh, brand new's Devil and God. Nice. I, I think it just came at a right at the right time for me too, and it it's just every little aspect. Like there's crazy dynamic in it, but it's not so crazy that it's uncomfortable, and everything just sounds great in such a way that when I listen to that record, I don't pick it apart like crazy. Now I do, but I definitely can get lost in that record, and it's so hard to get lost in records. I like that, yeah. And I like that record does have like some overt like not perfections and yet it still works so perfectly yeah i never think about the imperfections on that record and i think it's just because it's packed full of just great like just a great songs by a great band and they made a great record nice let's talk about five of your favorite records and how they shaped your musical growth well yeah so devil and god Mm -hmm. for sure rage against the machines self-titled that record is so good and it's so old and it still holds up to everything these days. It's just perfect to me. Yeah, that's a, that, that, that is a, a crazily classic recording and all their, I think, recordings really do stand the test of time pretty well. Yeah, totally. And they're all so different, which yeah. is really cool. And it's also crazy to think that first record is all an SM58 in the control room, too, for vocal. It's yeah. It's fucking wild. It sounds so good. Saves the days, stay what you are. Nice. It's every single song on that record is perfect. Mm-hmm. I will never skip a song on that record. Bleed American, mm-hmm. Take Off Your Pants and Jacket by Blink. Nice. Three favorite producers. John Feldman, Neil Avron, and Jerry Finn. Very good taste over here. <laughs> Thank you. I won't lie. A lot of like producers try to like distance from, uh, not a lot because uh, there's a bunch of producers, but some guys try to not be like the pop punk thing, but I love pop punk and those guys have made my favorite records and they've made some of my favorite like rock records. Yeah, no, I I am right there with you is like, I will still to this day, like go back and explore Jerry Finn records that I didn't ever give as much of a chance to and anything Neil Avron does, I'm going to check out. Oh yeah. That guy can't make a bad record. I like, I mean... I would do anything to be a fly on the wall in like a Neil Avron record. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm sure. I mean, it's funny though, because like when I've talked to people who've worked with him, it doesn't sound like he's doing anything that crazy. But you know, his records sound totally different than what everybody else does. Like his guitar tones. Like I was just listening to that the last of the Yellow Card records he did, and it just like oh yeah. The way whatever he's doing in a saturated guitar is so much different than anybody I know. Yeah, it, it has its own space when every guitar these days is just like supposed to be like is a wall mm-hmm. on records. His still are like cool sounding. There's guys who get stuck in their ways with gear. And me too. Like, I don't like using like a dual rec mm-hmm. on a record or anything sort of Mesa. Like, I don't really like uh, or anything. You and I have so much so much in, in common with this <laughs> stuff. Yeah. But uh, like. I th- I'm almost positive a lot of records he's done is like a, a probably a dual record or mm. something like that because it's got that rectifiery sound and it fits in perfect and you know it's his sound. That's a great point. What's your favorite record of recent times and what inspires you about it? The new Paris album. Oh, man, we have a lot in common. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's everybody's everybody's it record. That being said, uh, the new Bring Me the Horizon record too. And they're, they're similar in their own ways, but I think just the, the vibe that those two records give off, especially the new Paris one, is something I haven't heard in a long time. And they're like, they're dark mixes. They're not there to be like flashy mm. and crazy. They're just there to be good songs. So it's again, an, it's another record for the first in a while that I've listened to where I'm not overanalyzing every little bit of it. I'm just super enjoying 
the Parasite. Nice. I'm going to have to, to give that Bring Me the Horizon another chance. A band brought it in when I was doing a mix one time, and it was just so not what I was feeling for the mix. I don't think I gave it a good shot, so now I'm going to have to check it out. It, yeah, it's a weird mix. It's like super low MIDI and kind of like not what you'd expect, especially the last record was like David Bendith and huge mm-hmm. drums and gigantic. I think it works for the song. I was the same way. I couldn't get past the mix for a little bit, and then I was just like, I'll just listen to this, and I, I enjoy it a lot nice. more now. So our last question is, uh, what have you been working on lately? I just finished up a mix for a band from Australia called Undercast, mm. and they're a really good pop-punk band. I, I did I mixed their first EP, too. I finished that Heavy Hearts record I was talking about back in um, in November. A sort of hardcore band in uh, sort of like Bring Me the Horizon Under Oathy called Profits. I mixed four songs for them. They're really good. Like They're one of the only heavy bands I'm really stoked on these days. Near the end of last year, I did the Like Pacific mm-hmm. record, and it came out in February, and it's just been such a crazy experience to hear so many people dig that record because at the time, I had no idea how that record would, would sort of come out, and everybody is really happy with it. And I was a little nervous for a long time, so hearing that people are stoked on that record kind of brought me back up to being stoked on working again because it was like a knot in my stomach for a long time. Hmm. So yeah, sort of th- those few are like things I've been working on lately or just sort of wrapped up. Right now I'm actually, I'm not really working on anything at hmm. the moment, but uh, I have some stuff sort of booked up for a bit later in the month. But yeah, those few things are what I worked on recently. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.